Some of us, I think, have the uh, mistaken notion that uh, things today are decidedly worse than they were in New Testament times. And that's why the gospel had such an impact upon the Roman world. But uh, that's, a, that's a false notion. Uh, just this past week, I was reading a, a book by William Barclay uh, entitled Flesh and Spirit. And in it, he has a discussion of the moral state of the world uh, into which Paul went and preached, and a number of quotation from, uh, quotations from pagan writers. And the thing to note here is that this is, this is not a commentary on the state of things in the Roman world by Christians, but rather by Romans who were disgusted with themselves. Um, he quotes the Roman writer Juvenal, who says that women at that time were no more satisfied with one man than they would be with one eye. Roman women, said Seneca, were married to be divorced and were divorced to be married. Some of them distinguished the years not by the names of the consuls, but by the names of their husbands. Chastity was simply a proof of ugliness. That's a quote from Seneca. Innocence, says Seneca, is not rare. It is non-existent. Still worse was the unnatural vice which was rampant. It began in the imperial household. Caligula notoriously lived in habitual incest with his sister Drusella, and the lust of Nero did not even spare his mother Agrippina. And then he goes on describing Plato and Socrates' love for boys and concludes with a quote from Gibbon of the first 15 emperors, Claudius was the only one whose taste in love was entirely correct. This was the state of things in, in the ancient world, and it was into this uh, very dismal scene that the apostles first went and, and preached the gospel. And it changed the world then, and it can change the world now. Uh, turn with me to Acts 13, and uh, let's take a look at uh, just that sort of uh, contact with the pagan world. Acts 13 is a description of the uh, first part of Paul's first missionary journey as you know. Uh, Luke is aware that he's writing uh, about a momentous uh, event. This was the first time in the history of the church that one particular church determined to send out a group of men to an overseas mission. This was the, the beginning of the missionary enterprise as we know it. Individual Christians had gone uh, out from churches Christians had been scattered as a result of persecution, but this was, the, this was the first time that a church made a deliberate decision to send people out into uh, uh, areas where churches had never been planted and to introduce the pagan world to the Christian faith. As we saw last week, the first contact was with the people on the island of Cyprus. Paul and Barnabas and Mark traveled across to Cyprus, made their way from east to west, from the city of Salamis to Paphos, and preached the gospel in the synagogues as they went. And then beginning with verse 13, Luke carries on the story. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. It might be helpful to follow along in the, in the yellow map, the little uh, half sheet with the yellow map on it. It'll help you to fix some of these place names in your mind. They're not locations that were normally... Uh, familiar with. Luke tells us that 
They left Paphos, journeyed across to Perga in Pamphylia. Uh, the interesting thing to note about this uh, Paul's, or Luke's description of his trip is that, it, that it's now Paul and his companions. The order of uh, roles has been reversed. It's no longer Barnabas who's in a position of leadership, but rather Paul. We commented on this fact last week. And it may well be why John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Barnabas was, uh, was Mark's nephew, or Mark's uncle, excuse me. And uh, he may have felt uh, that it was wrong for Paul to take the leadership away from, from Barnabas, who resented it, and went home. It's also possible that he was homesick. One of the early Christian writers comments that uh, Mark went home to his mother. And uh, there's another possibility he might have been afraid. He saw that faraway look in Paul's eyes and realized that he had uh, some ideas that uh, perhaps they weren't privy to, and, and he began to feel a little bit uneasy. And when Paul took off for the inland of Asia Minor, Mark was frightened, and, and he went back home. Later, in referring to this event, Luke says that Mark defected. He uses a very strong word that means he, uh, he abandoned them. He left them in the lurch. And Paul seems to have resented that departure. Uh, he had a hard time getting along with this young man for a period of time. Somewhat later, Barnabas and Saul decided to, to leave again on their second missionary journey. And uh, Barnabas suggested that they take Mark with them. And Paul said, no, I'm not going to take that quitter with me. And uh, uh, the disagreement became so intense that Barnabas and and Paul split up and went their separate ways. It's interesting to see the human side of, of these men. Paul could not accept the fact that Mark would be of any use to him on this journey, and, but Barnabas could. And he took Mark with him off to Cyprus, and they disappear for a period of time, and, Barnab and Paul went his way. And it seems from the description in chapter 15 that the church agreed with Paul, that Barnabas stood against the entire church in his defense of Mark, and they went off uh, to Cyprus together, and they're lost uh, from view for a number of years. But later in Paul's life, in the book of Colossians and then in Second Timothy, he refers to Mark as someone who is profitable for the ministry and, in fact, asks that he be uh, sent to Rome to be with Paul in his, in his last months. And this is the young man who went on to write the Gospel of Mark, John Mark. Someone told me last week that I said that John Mark wrote the Gospel of John, uh, yeah, that's what happens when you approach 50. Your brain uh, begins to atrophy. Uh, as a friend of mine says, that one of the great ironies in life is that just about the time your face clears up, your mind goes. <laughs> uh, he did not write the Gospel of John. It obviously was the Apostle John. It was, it was Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark under Peter's authority. And then later went on to... Uh, uh, to, be a, to become a leader in the church in North Africa. Uh, th we'll develop this story later as we follow it through the book of Acts, but it, the, the story of Mark is a great antidote, I think, for discouragement. Anytime that we feel that we have so failed that we have disqualified ourselves, Mark is a good story to read because nobody is too far gone. God is, is, is interested primarily interested in saving lives and salvaging of people. And uh, Mark is a good illustration of that, uh, of God's attitude toward us. 
They uh, came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John abandoned them and returned to Jerusalem, and now there are only two, these two older uh, apostles or older missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, then went on from Perga and arrived at Pisidian Antioch. Luke has a way of, of uh, presenting his history in a very terse, uh, condensed way. And uh, in one uh, in one line, he describes what uh, amounts to a very dangerous journey. They had to make their way across a ridge of mountains called the Taurus Mountains in the southern part of what today is Turkey. Uh, mountains that were uh, that were dangerous to cross. This would be in the spring of the year. Rivers would be high and swift. I think that's what Paul has in mind when later he talks about his being in danger from rivers and danger from robbers. These uh, mountains were full of bandits. It was a very difficult journey. Luke just passes over, over all of that, their courage, and the difficulty of the trip by saying they passed from Perga into Pisidian uh, and Antioch. The journey would be somewhat like walking from here to Stanley. If you walked up the road to Atlanta and then across the uh, Sawtooths into Redfish Lake and then on up to uh, Stanley, you'd have some idea of the distance and the difficulty of, of the journey. And in the spring of the year, uh, when the snows were melting, it would be extremely dangerous. This may also be why Mark decided to go home. He wanted no part of that, of that journey. But uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, carried on, went into Pisidian Antioch. Uh, this is simply Antioch in Pisidia. You, you notice, you note the map, they came from Antioch in Syria. And this is uh, Antioch, another Antioch, a city by the same name, named for the same man, Antiochus, in another part of the world, in the region of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. This was, as you know, Paul's custom. This was his point of contact with the outside world. He would uh, be dressed in his rabbinic garb and recognized as such. He probably wore a distinctive type of rabbinic garb because he'd been a member of the Supreme Court uh, in Jerusalem and uh, would be immediately recognized, although they may not have known who he was. It was some 12 or 13 years since he'd been in Jerusalem, and they might well have forgotten who he was or not uh, have known him uh, at all, ever. Uh, so he went into the synagogue and sat down and waited for God to open a door. And we talked about this last week, Paul's confidence in God to make these openings. Uh, he was not uh, intrusive. He wasn't brash. He didn't make a pest out of himself. He counted on the Lord to provide openings to preach the gospel. A number of years ago, I, I met a, a missionary in Greece who was... Uh, uh, pleased to tell me that he had been arrested four or five times as a result of preaching the gospel, and on two of those occasions had been imprisoned for a, a short period of time. And uh, in inquiring further from a friend of mine, a friend of mine, Michael Contargis, who's a missionary there with Overseas Crusades, I discovered that this man had been going around the city of Thessalonica and uh, uh, nailing tracks on the doors of local Greek Orthodox priests. And uh, the first time he was uh, arrested, the judge asked him to please stop doing that sort of thing. It's, it's against the law in Greece to evangelize or to proselytize outside the Greek Orthodox Church. But in most parts of the, of the country, they tend to overlook the law, and they try to be as, uh, as uh, kind as they can toward the evangelicals. But this man was uh, 
he, he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And he went right back to the same priest and, and nailed another track on his door. And this time, when he w appeared before the judge, the judge fined him for littering because the, there was a mandatory sentence of imprisonment for proselyting. And he didn't want to put him in prison. And uh, he went out and did it again. And so they had to put him in jail. He just kept forcing the issue. Well, I don't see that for myself as evangelism. That's not suffering for the cause of Christ. That's suffering not because the gospel uh, is offensive, but because we are offensive. Uh, we don't need to make pests out of ourselves. There will be opposition to the proclamation of the gospel. No question about that. Paul says that if we live godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. But it needs to be persecution for the sake of the gospel, not because of our own uh, brashness and our, our obtrusiveness. We need to be bold, but not brash. We need to be forthright, but be sensitive to other people's interests and, and their needs and not run roughshod over people. We don't have to do that sort of thing. And Paul saw clearly he didn't have to. He went into the synagogue, and he sat down, and he waited for God to open a door. And it wasn't long in coming. The uh, custom in the synagogue then, as it is now, was to read Scripture. In those days, they, they didn't have copies of the Bible, of course, to read. The only copies would be kept in the synagogues uh, under lock and key there. But on the Sabbath, they would bring out the scroll and they would read it. They, they had divided the Bible into a number of sections. Satyrine, they're, they're called. The Jews still refer to them in that way today. And there was a particular Seder, that is a section from the law, from the first five books of the Old Testament, and a section from the prophets that was read each each Sunday morning, and that's what, uh, or each Sabbath morning, and that's what they uh, that's what they did. But after the reading of the law and the prophets, Luke tells us the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, "Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it." And there is Paul's golden opportunity, uh, taking his cue probably from the the seder that was read. He began to. Uh, to preach. Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And then what he does is review for them the history of Israel, not because they didn't know it, but because that was a common way of preaching in those days. They would go back through the the Bible, the Old Test our Old Testament scriptures, and review for the audience what uh, is referred to in the Old Testament as the great saving acts of God. And then they would preach from those saving acts. Now, that's what Paul is going to do. Verse 17, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. He refers to the choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and the other brothers of Jacob. The choice of the patriarchs out of all of of the human race to carry the promise of the seed. Then he refers to their enlargement in Egypt. They went from 70 people to two and a half million people. That was a miracle. It's never happened. Uh, it had never happened before in history. Never happened again. That sort of rapid expansion of a people. And with an uplifted arm, he led them from it. It's uh, one sentence that describes the miraculous exodus from Egypt, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, 
their deliverance from Pharaoh and his army. And for about a, a period of 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's a very apt uh, description of God's uh, burden during the, during the wilderness experience. For 40 years, he had to put up with their moods and their bad manners. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophets. These were the great heroes like Samson and Jephthah and Ehud and, and uh, Gideon and others. And uh, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed them, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own, own heart, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now he begins to apply this review of, of history. And I'm sure everyone at that point sat straight upright in their chairs. People woke up and uh, they began to attend with, with great interest. From the offspring of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. And everyone was stabbed away. You see, he's, he's speaking to Jews who were well aware of the promise. We, we're not really attuned to this message because we Gentiles don't really know what he's talking about. But every Jew in that audience would know exactly what he had in mind. The promise is the theme that ties the entire Old Testament together. We've gone over this a number of times, but it begins back in Genesis 3 after the story of the fall when the Satan, when the snake, the serpent was told that the seed of the woman would someday crush his head, but in so doing he would bruise his heel. In other words, the man, some man who was uh, the seed of this woman, one of her progeny, would stamp on the head of the serpent, deal a mortal blow to the serpent, but in so doing injure his heel. He would inflict pain upon himself. And that became known as the first preaching of the, uh, of the good news. That was the good news that someday some man was going to set things right. And that promise was stated again to Shem, and to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and uh, to one of Jacob's sons, Judah. And they knew one day a man would come along who would uh, fix everything. He would set things right. And then David came, and that promise was given to him. One of his descendants uh, would be a king who would rule with, with righteousness. Righteousness and peace, he said, would, would kiss each other. And uh, the nation of Israel would, would have a, a place in the historic scheme of things. They would become a light to the, uh, to the nations. And that was the promise that Israel clung to for hundreds of years. After, after David died, uh, other of his sons came to, the, came to the throne. And they would think, perhaps this is the one. But uh, he wouldn't be a savior at all. He, he would be a bully who would push them around and who cared very little for spiritual things, and nothing at all uh, for the promise. And he would die, and they would uh, hope that his successor would do a better job of things, but he wouldn't. He would be just like his, his predecessor. And uh, so this, uh, this hope went unfulfilled for hundreds of years, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited until Jesus came. And he was the son of David, who was like David. He was a man after, after God's own heart. And uh, what Paul is saying is that what you've been waiting for all of these years, I've come to announce the long-awaited Savior is Jesus of Nazareth. 
And then he goes on in verse 24 to tell them the story because this would all be news to them. They didn't have the Gospels as we have them today. They had no understanding of, of Jesus' uh, life and ministry. But they might have heard of John because he was regarded in Israel as a prophet. And so in verse 24, he refers to John. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me. The sandals of, of whose feet I am not worthy to un untie. See, the rumor had spread that John was the Messiah. It, it started when John was preaching, and it spread all over the Roman world. And these people are thinking, perhaps John is the one. But Paul reminds them, no, it wasn't, wasn't John. It wasn't John. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and, and those among you who fear God to us, the word of this salvation is sent out for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Unwittingly, they fulfilled all the predictions that Messiah would suffer and die. And they executed him. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now as witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. Now, when he says he raised up Jesus here, he's not talking about the resurrection, but rather the fact that he brought him into being. He appointed him as, as David's uh, legitimate heir the Messiah who is to come. And he quotes Psalm 2 to corroborate that, uh, that conviction. Now, there are a number of Old Testament uh, passages that follow. We don't have time to look at all of them, but would, would you turn back to Psalm 2 with me? Because it's important, I think, to understand what he's saying. Uh, historically, David was, uh, was in the midst of a rebellion against his uh, kingdom. David ruled over all of the world west of the Euphrates at this point, from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean. And uh, there appears to have been a, an uprising among the, the nations over which he ruled. And that rebellion is described in the first three verses. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, the word Translated anointed, anointed here is the word Messiah. It comes from a Hebrew word that means to anoint. And, it, and it's referring to David here. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah to overthrow his rule, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's overthrow David and his rule. The verses that follow describe God's reaction. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You may rebel, he says, but I have set my king on his throne. Then David responds, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thy inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Uh, back in Second Samuel 7, in a passage that we've uh, uh, taught before, um, God says to David, I will be your father, and you shall be my son. David had that unique relationship to God. He was adopted as God's son. He was given a position of authority that no one could overthrow. And David, apparently, time and time again, when his nation was in, was in rebellion, went back to that moment when God said, you're my son, and no one is going to overthrow your rule. Now, that's why Paul alludes to this, to this passage. The same is true of Jesus. God has set his son on the throne, and no one will overthrow his rule. But you say the psalm refers to David. Yes, it does. But it has a second and greater application to the, the David who is to come, the Messiah. And Paul goes on to point out that these Old Testament passages that referred to the king ultimately refer to Messiah. In verse 35, therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David wrote that psalm. And, and Paul says, that psalm cannot possibly be fulfilled in the life of David because David did undergo decay. He did die. His tomb is among us today, as Peter has said earlier. So this psalm does not refer in any ultimate and final sense to David, but to Messiah. Verse 35, therefore he also... Or verse 36, for David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, and this is his conclusion, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be free through the law of Moses. That's Paul's concluding remark. This uh, one who was promised in, in the very beginning of the human race, right after the fall, who would come and set things right, has come and he has set things right. Now, we're not looking, as Gentiles, we're not looking for a, a Messiah in the same manner in which the Jews look for a Messiah. That's not a part of our history. But down deep inside, there is, in all, there is in all of us a hunger for someone who will come along and set things right, and somehow we know that someday our prince will come. We know. It's in our fairy tales. It's in our mythology. It's in our thinking. It's our psychiatrist. He will give us the answer. Or he will give me some magic pill or potion that will set everything right. Or it's a husband. That's what I need is some man in my life to straighten things out. Or I need my husband to straighten up so that everything will be right in my life. Or it's a particular political leader who's going to change things for the good and put us on the right course and keep us on the right course so America, again, will be just and uh, there'll be justice and righteousness. Those longings are not necessarily bad, but they're totally unrealistic. The Jews in the whole world looked for hundreds of years for someone who would come and set things right, and the best of men could not set things right. But Jesus came. And Paul says when he came, 
He made it possible for us to be free from all things which we could not be free from by self-effort or by the help of any other individual. And the thing that he underscores is forgiveness of sin. Because if anyone needed forgiveness of sin, it was the people to whom he was speaking. Though they were Jews, they lived in a pagan Gentile environment, and they knew they were not measuring up to the demands of the law. They couldn't. Who can? We, we can't even live up to our own standards, much less God's standards. And even if we could from this moment on measure up to God's standard, what about the past? What do we do about the failures and the guilt of the past? And so we carry around this big burden of guilt that we don't know what to do with. And we desperately look for someone who will relieve the sense of guilt. Tell us that, well, it's not sin after all that you're doing. But inside we know exactly what it is. It is sin. We violated our own standards as well as God's standards. We feel like the faith healer from Deal who said, although sin is not real, when I sit on a pin and it punctures my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel. It's just there. We can't get away from it. And it has to be relieved. Uh, Years ago when I was on the staff at Peninsula Bible Church in in, uh, California, I uh, had a young man come into my office and he was uh, just completely distraught and unstrung and he couldn't sit still. He was so nervous. He'd jump up and pace the floor and wring his hands and he wept uh, and uh, tried as best he could to tell me of this terrible burden of guilt in his life, a thing that he had done in the past from which he could find no, no relief. And I, uh, I tried my very best to explain to him that Jesus had died for that sin, that he didn't have to pay the penalty for his guilt, that we all fail in, in small and large measure. It really makes no difference. We're all failures. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And I, and I tried to talk to him about the grace of God, but he would have none of it. And uh, finally left without finding any, any satisfaction uh, for his guilt. And uh, three or four hours later, uh, one of my fellow staff members, Ron Ritchie, came running up the stairs and he banged on my door and shouted at me and I ran out of the door. We ran across the street. This young man lived across the street in a, he was rooming in a house just a couple of doors down from the church building. And uh, we found him in his Volkswagen. He had gone into the garage and hooked up a, a, uh, a uh, hose to the exhaust and killed himself. And there he sat. Uh, and it just, it was just one of the, the, uh, those blows that you hardly, uh, just takes you forever to get over to realize that you couldn't get it across to him. That's what guilt will do to us. It'll destroy us. But, uh, Paul tells us that because Jesus came, when we entrust ourselves to him, we're freed from all of those things from which we cannot be free by any other scheme. No other man can save us. You can read of the writings of all other religious leaders and they never promise forgiveness of sin. They try to do away with sin or they tell you ways to pay for your sin, but they do not promise forgiveness. Only Jesus can do that. And that preaching struck those people the same way it strikes us. 
in verse 42, And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. They followed the apostle down the street and uh, wanted more information, followed him into his uh, hotel room and wanted to talk further. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. They were uh, dogs in the manger. They were they were preventing the Gentiles from hearing the gospel. But uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you, that is, you Jews first, but since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for thus the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes from Isaiah. For thus the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have placed you as a light among the, for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. That was why God chose the Jews. So they could, could be a source of light to the Gentiles. And Paul says, you, you've, you've turned away from the light, you've repudiated it, you've ref you could have the inestimable joy of taking the gospel out to the Gentile world. Since you have repudiated it, we're going directly to the Gentiles. God said, we as his people are to be a light to the nations. Now, I'm going to be a light whether you are or not. And uh, then uh, in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. They continued to come to the synagogue, apparently, for some time before Paul and Barnabas were cast out of the synagogue, and they took the best seats, and uh, the Jews couldn't even get in their synagogue. These are Gentiles that were, that were coming and crowding out these uh, other religious folk, and they were, as Luke puts it, rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and the word began to spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews aroused the devout women of the pro, uh, devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their their district. There were attached to the synagogue Gentile women who would be attracted to the synagogue because of the high moral uh, stance of Jews. They were tired of the disintegrating family life around them and and corruption, moral corruption. And so they had attached themselves to the synagogue. And they were the wives of prominent Roman officials in the city of Antioch, apparently. And uh, they then persuaded their husbands to drive Paul and Barnabas out of the district. And these two men then shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them, as Jesus had said, if they won't hear you, then turn from them, go where people will hear you. And they went on to Iconium, some 90 miles off to the east. But the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That is, the disciples who remained, the Gentiles that, uh, that, that stayed behind in, uh, in Antioch. Paul's method, wherever he went, was to appeal to these God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogues. He went to the synagogue because he could get a hearing there. And though there would be some Jews who would respond, there were... Uh, most of his response came from the Gentiles, the God-fearers, who were not proselytes. They hadn't been circumcised and were not really a part of, of, uh, of Judaism, but they were attracted to the synagogue by the high moral uh, teachings and by the scriptures, the ex exposition of scriptures and the worship of one God. And these were the people that, uh, that Paul reached, and these were the people who formed the nucleus of these churches that he planted 
wherever he went. They were a bridge between the Jewish world and the purely pagan world who had no understanding of Scripture. Paul would come into a city, preach to these Gentile God-fearers, and they in turn would take the, the message out uh, to the other Gentiles who had no contact with the synagogue and no, and perhaps no overt interest in, uh, in spiritual things. And it just strikes me again that this is the way the gospel moves. It moves through people. It's always people winning people. I, I'm afraid so much of our evangelism uh, is mechanized to the point that it's impersonal. Uh, in bumper stickers and lapel pins and turn or burn t-shirts and uh, <laughs> those sorts of things that, uh, that I, as far as I'm concerned, have minimal value. Praying Santas and kind of pop culture uh, things that we use to try to get the gospel across. But what I see in the book of Acts is people taking the gospel to people and to the worst sorts of people and people who had formerly been their friends. The tendency of so many of us as Christians, once we find the Lord, is to withdraw from all of our non-Christian friends. And to some extent, that, that has to be done, uh, particularly for someone who's been in a drug culture. It's just folly to go back and spend time with, with your, your friends who are drug users because there's too much temptation. But we should not withdraw from all of our non-Christian friends, certainly, because that, we have a natural point of contact there. We need to make friends and retain our friendships with, with so-called sinners because that's the gospel flows most easily along those lines. Uh, I, I have a, a friend, Jack Sparks, who started an organization called Christian World Liberation Front. The um, organization now, I, I don't think, exists any longer. It's now called Christian Counterfeits. And some of you may be more familiar with it uh, under, that, under that name. But when Jack first started uh, his ministry, he realized that the only way to reach the counterculture people was through ex-counterculture people. And uh, so he, he started winning... Uh, a few to Christ, and then he began to train them. And this, they then became teams that went throughout the San Francisco Bay Area evangelizing the, uh, the counterculture, uh, people in the counterculture movement of that time. A lot of it was centered in San Francisco and the North Beach. And I'm sure most of you know the North Beach by reputation. And that's where the topless bars and the gay bars and a lot of the uh, porno shops and just sort of a center of vice and wickedness in San Francisco. And Jack and his people would go down on the streets and they would share Christ. And they were effective because often the people that were on the streets were ex-prostitutes, ex-procurers, barkers in these sideshows. They had been involved in this world and they understood the, the, the way these people think and they could relate to them. And Jack tells one story about the time they went to the El Condor, which was a notorious topless bar on North Beach, and they began to uh, picket uh, the Condor with uh, signs uh, that said, uh, family night at the Condor, bring your family next uh, Friday. And uh, that sort of struck people as funny, and, and the, uh, the proprietor came out to Jack and those that were uh, picketing, and he said, look, uh, would you like to come in and say a word to the people? And Because he recognized some of them, and they went in and and one of these men got up on the bar and he said, the first thing I want to do is open this meeting with a word of prayer. And they all laughed because they, they recognized him and they thought it would be a spoof. And so they all stopped everything they were doing. And he led in prayer. And it dawned on him after a period of time that this was a real prayer. He wasn't. 
He wasn't making fun of spiritual things. And a quiet descended on the group, and the proprietor slipped over to the door and locked it because he didn't want anybody else in there. And Jack and this uh, group had an opportunity for about an hour to share the gospel with these people. Now, that's, that's the sort of thing that we need to be doing. And perhaps not going to that particular location, because that may not be where you're, where you're from. But wherever we have a point of contact, we need to be proclaiming the gospel. Now, I want to return to one other statement that's made earlier uh, in verse 39. Now, let's back up one verse to verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. For through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. And you may be thinking, not me, I've gone too far. But that's not true. Either Paul is right or he's a liar. And I don't think that he could ever be, that, that could ever be demonstrated that he's not true to his word. He can be trusted. Paul says we can be free from all things. I had a young lady come into my office last week and and as she described her state, she was under a, a terrible load of sin. And after we talked for a while, she realized that she needed a Savior and invited Jesus to save her from her sins. And her comment as she walked out was this, I came, under, I, I came into this room with a great burden, and I'm walking out light. And I thought of our Lord's words, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, uh, upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and gentle in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Now that's what the Lord will do for you. If you trust Him as your Savior, He'll make your burden light. He'll forgive you for all things, though everything from which you could not find forgiveness before. Let's stand, shall we? If you have, have never Ask Christ to be your Savior. Would you pray with me this, this prayer as we pray together? Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins. I want to claim that forgiveness and walk in the new freedom of life that your salvation produces. Come into my life now as Savior and Lord. Come in and make me the kind of person that I long to be. Thank you for coming into my life. Lord, I thank you that this forgiveness is not only a once, a one-time thing, but a once-for-all thing. We're not only forgiven of the past, but we walk in a forgiven state. And we realize again that we... We cannot outdo the grace of God. For every failure, there is an equal and corresponding measure of forgiveness. And we thank you that we can be liberated from habits and moods that we know are wrong, actions and attitudes that are so destructive in our life and so destructive to others. Thank you for freeing us up to be your children. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.